and welcome to the Dairy Dialogue podcast, and this is number 93. I'm Jim Cornall, editor of Dairy Reporter, and I'm doing things a little differently this week because I'm allegedly on holiday, so putting it together a little earlier than usual. A quick look out of the window at the pouring rain confirms that I'm definitely on holiday and not doing any of the walking that I'd planned on. Yes, I know I could go anyway and get soaked, but the view from the tops of hills from inside a cloud is a bit dull, to be honest. Enough of my complaining, let's run through who our guests are on the show this week. We have conversations with First Milk CEO Sheila Hancock and CFO Greg Jardine, Lourdes Mato, research scientist, and Lisa Power, director of marketing at Edlong, Mary Quick from UK cheesemaker Quicks, and Terry Daly, co-founder of Avocado Milk. It seems like every week another event is being cancelled, and this time, sadly, we saw the postponement for a year of the World Cheese Awards, which were to be held in Oviedo in Spain. So that's another one off the list for 2020, although there are plans for it to take place a year later in 2021. I have to say I was looking forward to that one, but of course, safety is definitely the most important thing. Here in the UK, there was a swiftly imposed quarantine on holidaymakers coming back to the UK from Spain, which has left a few people with problems. It seems that most people are opting for staycations this year and staying close to home, which I guess makes sense. Although, if you live in a wet and chilly place like I do now, you can't blame people for wanting a bit of sun and warmth. I was going to say sun and sand, but we've got plenty of beaches around here. Wonderful ones, actually, just not very warm. Before we dive into the interviews, let's take a look at some of the news we've covered this week. We had an article on crime, which is kind of unusual for dairy, but an international food fraud operation confiscated 320 tonnes of dairy products, some of which was inedible and some of which was incorrectly labelled. SIG has launched QR code marketing closures. Migros and Innovopro launched some yogurt alternatives with chickpea protein. Board at Home, who we featured on the podcast a few weeks ago, have expanded their operations across the US. Bluegrass Dairy has changed its name to Bluegrass Ingredients. And Elopax says its natural brown board carton sales are exceeding expectations. Amol says it wants to be in the top three dairy companies in the world. Mettler Toledo Product Inspection is providing free product evaluation and testing services. DW Reusables has introduced a smart solution for the retail supply chain. And researchers at the National Institute of Standards and Technology in the US say their expanded database will be a big benefit for producers of infant formula. And there are others which you can check out on DairyReporter.com. And so, on with the most important part, the guests on this week's show. First up is UK dairy cooperative First Milk, which recently published its annual report and its financials. And to tell us more about the highlights of the past year, our First Milk CEO Sheila Hancock and CFO Greg Jardine. First Milk's a farmer-owned cooperative. We have members right across the UK. So we have about 700 members in Scotland, England and Wales. Um, They, as a farmer's cooperative, would invest in the business and market their milk through the uh, 
company. Uh, we manufacture predominantly cheese and whey products. And uh, we have two main creameries, one in Haverford West in Wales and one in Cumbria, Lake District Creamery. In total, we will be producing about uh, 60 odd thousand tonnes of cheddar predominantly and then whey products. So whey concentrates and whey WPC-80s as well. Is it important that the company has that diversity of products? And I notice you also have a big diversity in terms of the customers that you have as well. Yes, what I described was very much our, our manufacturing business. Alongside that, I suppose we also have a, a brokered milk business. So we have about a third of the milk that we market uh, goes into a whole range of, of customers, mostly food manufacturers. But one of our largest customers would be someone like Nestle, who, who manufacture into chocolate crumb and cappuccino type sachets that, that they manufactured another at another site so different markets as well so customer diversification is is good but we also whilst we service a lot in the home market domestic market we, we probably supply most of the product we supply is in the domestic market but we have a, a growing export business as well and therefore you know a whole range of customers we export to about 26 different countries through our export partner and it's clear from your annual report that you have good relationships with a lot of companies. You know, th- those are very key and fundamental to us. We, we work very much in partnership with a number of key customers. So our NUA in the UK, um, we have a very long-term relationship there where we supply cheese into the retail market. So the product that we produce goes through their marketing uh, and, and cutting plant into retail. We, we would uh, supply into people like Sainsbury's and Tesco, working in partnership with our newer. And uh, Hookfeg Tavero is uh, a partner we have with the WPC 80 sales. So that was something that was a new development really last year. We uh, fully acquired the, the assets uh, which was previously a joint venture with Fonterra. So we, we took on full ownership of the assets and uh, entered into a, a partnership arrangement with Hookback Tavero, who are you know very much specialists into the sales of proteins into, into a whole range of customers, both here in the UK and internationally as well. And of course, as well as your annual report, it's the financials that came out. What, what are the highlights from that? The highlights is a, a growing business, a growing turnover. So we saw a turnover increase for the third year in a row, 4% growth year on year. Right across the business, both cheddar sales in the UK to our newer, but also export sales. Um, we also saw growth in our WPC80. I think what it also shows is a, a stable operating profit as a percentage of turnover broadly in line with what we've delivered in previous years. But at the same time, we've improved our relative milk price. So as a cooperative, looking to return back to the members. So we measure it as a milk price index, and we've seen that relative position uh, improve year on year. It was a year where we managed to reduce our net debt as well. So we brought our net debt down by 8 million, but continued to invest in the creameries. Uh, important to us in terms of two creameries and that investment for the future. And we spent in excess of 5 million last year. At Halford West, improvements uh, in our capex was uh, around uh, adding a new cheddar tower, and we started spend towards a, a CHP at Halford West. And in the Lake District Creamery, we invested as well. So Dupex pasteurizers, um, looking at improving quality and also the capacity in the site. And we'll continue to invest at that sort of level at the sites going forward. We also saw our balance sheet improve as well. So as we've delivered positive operating profits, reduced our pension deficit 
and just our net debt, we saw the net assets and the strength of the balance sheet grow as well. So 25% growth in the net assets within the business. The awful question about coronavirus, which seems to creep into every conversation, but how is that affecting things currently and how do you anticipate that affecting things in the next financial report? I think initially, uh, practically every business, you know, we that we were uh, really coming to terms with the pandemic and having to put in a whole load of procedures and uh, into place at, at the sites. Our key uh, concern at that time was ensuring operational continuity. We were just approaching uh, spring peak and uh, it would be a busy time of year anyway. But of course, anything around staff absence was going to be an issue. So a big focus, huge focus in the first month. But what I'm really pleased to, to see and uh, and it continues to be the case, we had a very low absence rate right the way throughout. So very low single digit uh, absence rates. I think we're probably being a little bit fortunate in terms of our location of plants because they are they do typically tend to be rural and I think we've probably benefited from that as well as all of the measures that we've put into place you know we've very much followed uh, public health England advice throughout and a great commitment from the employees to be able to uh, continue operations so 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 far we've we've sort of weathered the storm to operationally uh, continue and same as we we mentioned a lot of people working from home now and remotely and getting all of that set up has now become very much established practice so that that's different i think from a customer point of view it's actually strengthened relations because we went into a lot of really regular dialogue through that time because there was a lot of change in production plans and demand planning um, so there was a huge frequency and working collaboration in terms of ensuring continuity of supply and I think because of where our customers are positioned, many of them uh, face into retail um, has meant that, in fact, we've seen an uplift in demand during that period. So as we now come out of the lockdown restrictions, I think like everyone, we would be concerned about the wider economic impact that it's going to have and and how that's going to unfold over time but you know for for our business we continue to invest we continue to work well with our customers and you know we'd like to think that we we come out next year and with it with a similar uh, set of solid results i noticed in the report that there's a section on sustainability which is of course becoming more and more important to the end consumer as well i wonder if you could run through what the company's doing with respect to sustainability? Yeah, I think as a farmer's co-op, we're really well placed in the supply chain to sort of take and translate some of those consumer concerns and uh, needs all the way through to primary producers. So some of the concerns that they would have around environmental, it's very much about health, welfare and climate. Those issues are things that we can address from grassroots effectively. So working with our farmer members, This year, we have launched a First for Milk pledge, which is really a sort of central bank to our sustainability agenda. And that runs not only through the members and the practices they have on farm, but through into our creameries and sites as well, where we look at the supply chain uh, from a a carbon point of view, energy, uh, water usage, and and all of those sort of resource uh, side of things. And I think it's really resonated with our members because they really understand why consumers have these concerns. They understand their role within it. And from our point of view, I think it's very much about protecting and promoting the business and the dairy industry in a broader sense. 
So are you constantly working on those targets and uh, amending them if need be? Yes, we have a range of targets that we, we, we track and measure over a number of years. So we do believe that it has to be, you know, there, there, is, a, there is a progression that will take time to deliver. So we have that and we, we continue to, to set targets and we work towards it. I think one of the initiatives that we had this year was the launch of our First for Milk mobile app. Um, I think in the industry, it was, uh, as far as we, we understand, it was a first. And that has been really, I think, useful for members, but really useful for us too, in terms of being able to collate and be one data point to be able to collate many sources of information into one place. So members can manage their own information much more efficiently, but also it gives us really good insight into traceability right the way through the farm. And it's almost looking at what's happening in lifetime, what's happening on farms as well. So uh, that, that's been an interesting development. And we've got plenty more plans as to how that will continue to develop and, and evolve uh, over the next 12 months. You already mentioned the financial highlights earlier. I wonder if you could give me some of the other highlights that you've achieved or that you've been particularly proud of over the last 12 months. I, th- I think there's a, there's a range. So I think in some of the environment, uh, some of some of those targets in terms of the improvement we've made from a sustainability point of view, you know, some of the water reductions and carbon reductions, those are really good. From a community point of view, we, we also supported Alzheimer's charity last year, and I think that was great as an initiative to be able to to be able to do something and put something back into the community. I think from a member's point, our engagement is really good, and we had some you know fantastic results back from our uh, survey for, from members and their level of engagement. So some of the initiatives we have with their next generation of young farmers been really positive where we're seeing young farmers want to engage and us to be able to help facilitate some information there in terms of involving them more in the total supply in the total supply chain uh, so we thought that was good I think from a customer point of view um, we've had some really good developments and one of the ones in particular I'd say we're, we're very pleased about is the development of our export business so you know we've seen significant growth in this last year on that um, in terms of where we're exporting to and the you know the, the volumes that we're exporting out to now and I think that is where the opportunity for us in terms of growth is and potentially can be you know if you look at GB in terms of being able to produce uh, produce milk provenance in terms of manufacturing excellence and standards it's a great place from a dairy perspective but of course the, the growing markets are, are very much those emerging markets and um, you know we've we've started to see that development and growth and I think there's more for the future there as well. And what else are you expecting over the next 12 months? Difficult to say with coronavirus, obviously, but what do you think is pressing in the next year? Well, I think one of the big topics for us is uh, Brexit. It looks as though the discussions are problematic and will present challenges. We, We would very much like to be able to see at the end of this year some sort of trade agreement reached. I think it's in the interest of all be able to have a, a free trade agreement in place, but that that looks uh, challenging. So, you know that that's a that's something on the horizon that we're looking closely at. That's one aspect. I think from a business point of view, and Greg, you might want to comment in terms of the the investment program that we have in terms of you know continuing to develop the business. Yeah, we're going to continue. As I said, we invested five million last year, over five million, and we'll continue to do the same level of investment. So, Lake District Creamery, we're going to be 
putting in a new rapid chill store so at the back end of the process where the, the cheese goes in for 24 hours after it's produced that's going to be a, a big investment side but at Lave District we continue to invest there and get plans for the next few years beyond that so continuing to invest the future and invest to increase the capacity along with the growing demand we've got we're all open up the capacity to be able to supply that demand. Next, we hear from U.S. flavour company Edlong, which recently expanded its line of dairy-based natural flavours. To tell us more are Lourdes Mato, research scientist, who you will hear from first, and towards the end of the interview, also from Lisa Power, who is the company's director of marketing. Yeah, well, actually, uh, I mean, if these products uh, are essentially originally using modified enzyme or culture-modified basis, to release the, the, the taste of the dairy, no? If we are look, looking, for example, at the main taste generating cheeses or in culture products, and then what we use is a top noting with aroma compounds just to round the flavor, whether we wanted to make a specific cheese profile, even a specific profile in brands of cheese, we can move, you know, the, the needle there if we want certain type of cheddars or certain type of Italians, etc. And the same with the culture products, you know, you can move a little bit to kind of come to the flavor that you find in a specific brands of, um, let's say, sour milks or uh, bottom milk or sour cream or any of the culture dairy. And because in many cases you come with the source of the, of the product, you can actually label in the finished application as such. Sometimes it's not possible, and then if you don't want to call type, you generally, let's say if you don't want to call blue type because you come from other cheeses when you make your enzyme modification, then you can simply call enzyme modified cheese or natural cheese, but don't call blue because it's not true. You know, in the flavor industry, those things are heavily regulated, and unless you use the source, you should not call. But in many of the cases, yes, it can allow you to call by the source of the, of the product. So what kind of applications would they be used in? You know, dairy flavors goes in almost every kind of application. This line was specifically developed for sauces, dressing, and dips because the flavor forms are emulsion and paste, and that many times, you know, is the, the desired application for those, and because of the performance. You know, when we try in different kinds of applications, we went from bakery to snacks, to sauces and dressings, to soups, etc., and we found that this specific uh, few flavors we just launched in the line have a fantastic performance in this kind of application. So that's why we narrow down the launch for these applications. So if you want to reduce commodity and let's say reduce your amount of cheddar in a sauce in a dip. You can use these flavors, which I use a very, very little amount because they are concentrate flavors. And then you can reduce or simply totally replace your cheddar and without sacrificing the taste. And did you already have products in this particular line for different applications before you added these ones? Uh, this particular line is a new launch. So we have a lot of daily flavors and of course, yes, they go to all kinds of applications. You know, we have snacks there, and it's more the, the seasoning, you know, the topical application. And we have also in bakery, a lot of our flavors going there. 
this particular line is an expansion and is an expansion on emulsion and paste natural flavors, all of them dairy containing flavor, they contain some dairy ingredient. And then these are, you know, more focused to these specific applications, to the sauce, the dips and sauces. And what, and what benefits do they do they give to the finished product that don't already exist? Like how do they improve those products? Well, uh, we actually have very interesting um, results using sensory tools in which the applications that were put in the taste were preferred when using the flavor than even when using the real cheese, for example. And that was kind of a very positive uh, response we get through the studies all, all this because we were able, you know, you are able to save cost. Dairy commodities are expensive. So in certain, for example, sauce, when you have to go all the way to 12, 15% cheddar cheese, if you can reduce that to a flavor that you use at 0.4%, for example, you reduce a lot of cost there in your um, ingredient composition in the finished application. And some of those shows that actually by the consumer, it was preferred the one using the flavor than the one using the real cheese. And how do you come up with those flavors? A lot of research, I guess. Well, uh, if you understand the aroma compounds and the other tastans which are present in dairy products, dairy commodities, you know, from milk to fermented dairy to, I mean, fermented liquid dairy, yogurt, sour milk, uh, buttermilk, sour cream, etc., to um, cheeses, to any of the dairy products. And you understand which is what are the components responsible for that? You can duplicate that, you know, using the chemicals, which are, they have to be food grade, of course, or you can use, you know, generate those components via fermentation, which is actually what really happened in many of the dairy uh, real products. And then you, you know, it's, it's that understanding of the chemistry of those and the chemical components present in those um, real dairy that you can duplicate or replicate those. And so as far as l labeling goes, these are all natural products? that you All can... natural products. So none, none of the components used is coming from uh, artificial flavors or what we call, you know, from the petrochemical origin. No, everything is natural generated. What tells, you know, in one way or the other, you know, when you go, for example, you have, let's say, butyric acid, you can produce that naturally via fermentation and then it can be purified and you have butyric acid, which is coming from a natural source. The same applies to any of the other acids we use or other aroma compounds, aldehydes, esters, etc., which are part of the composition of the of the flavor, but all of them are of natural origin. Do you have a range for dairy-free plant-based applications as we well? Do. We do. We also have a line of dairy-free dairy flavors and that sounds kind of you know if you understand that the flavors are generated by the chemical components present in the in the product doesn't matter what it is uh, you can have type um, flavor because in this case nothing is really coming from dairy depends what the consumer wants you know some consumers are okay using for plant-based if you are targeting vegans of course you cannot have any dairy but if you are targeting vegetarians, they are okay with dairy. So you can use still the dairy originated flavors and it's still a plant-based application. But if you are targeting vegans, then you need that other line of 
daily non-daily flavor which we have. We have we have a vast amount of daily flavors which doesn't contain any daily. And and how often do you add new flavors and new products to your overall portfolio? We do it very frequently because uh, we get a customer request and sometimes we already have existing flavors what they need for the application on the line and this is the very first way to go. But sometimes they need some tweaks on the flavor or something specifically developed for them and then we do it. We totally generate a new flavor and it's a new release to the line. As a line itself as it is now, we don't do it all the time you know this takes time because you have to develop product from scratch and then you have to taste in several applications you have to make a lot of sensory until you think your flavor has some value which is different from what you already have in the line and which is different from what competitors have in the market then you go and then generate a total new line with few flavors included there for different applications so the process depends on what you are looking for. But we can generate new flavors in, you know, daily basis because we have a, a flavor lab. And the new products that you've just come out with, have any, are any of those being used in any commercial products yet or is it too early for that? Well, we are now in the um, phase of promoting the flavors and they have been sent it to different customers and we are getting very good feedback. You know, we're excited about this new line. Edlong is focused on dairy flavors. We've been around for over 100 years. So we are global. We do have application lab like we do here in Mexico and in Europe. You know, we are targeting a little bit more U.S. for this, but it's been good so far. And they they taste really, really good. So they, the AI was a nice tool to help kind of speed up the commercialization and really it really shows kind of our expertise in flavoring that a lot of these cheese type profiles are highly preferred even over like some brand brand name cheeses, which is, which is nice. So we can definitely customize and kind of take it in really specific directions, which is nice. They kind of do a mapping and kind of can see, you know, what profiles or what characteristics or notes um, need to be added to get you to a certain you know, authentic taste based on what the customer's looking for. Yeah. Um, you know, we have that in the cheddar and we have that in the blue too. You know, the, the blue came so nicely and we used for some of the salad dressings. This is very, very popular in the United States. You know, the, the blue salad dressing is really popular. And blue cheese is not cheap. So if you can reduce blue cheese and, and use at least partially a flavor, you are going to reduce a lot of the cost without sacrificing the taste. One article that we had recently which I really enjoyed was the hybrid cheese being made by Quix in the UK and Bavarian cheesemaker Hofkäserei Kraus. So if you add cheddar to Alpine cheese, you get Alpen cheddar. And so to tell us about the new product, which is doing very well, and whether or not we should be expecting other hybrids like Cheddam, we welcome back to the podcast, Mary Quick. If you can tell me how it came about, yeah. and then we can then we can talk about how it actually happened and how you created it. Well, I think it came about with a colleague of mine, Tom Chatfield, working with Kaiser Kusher, which is a Bavarian company run by um, Norbert Sieghart. 
so he runs as well as he's uh, got an IT business and he's also got other, this other business, Kaiser Kusha, uh, you know, Cheese Kitchen in Bavaria. And he and Tom were speculating about, mm, I wonder what we could do. There must be something really interesting that we could do. And he's got this cheesemaker who's kind of similar to us, you know, small, farm-based, you know, milk from their own, his own cows, Albert Kraus from Hofkasserai House, I guess, um, cheese house. Said, well, you know, let, let's work with Albert and see if we can make this happen. And then how did you come up with the, the blend for it? Trial, trial and error and trying different... A, a bit of trial and error, but also um, because the, um, the Alp Blossom is a, be- is a beautifully sort of delicate cheese and with that quite delicate Alpine make. So you obviously can't put too much of the cheddar because it's a much more assertive cheese. So I think you couldn't, it wouldn't work so well perhaps the other way around. So, you know, you, we, that already means you're starting off at quite a sort of relatively low level. You don't want to overwhelm it with the cheddar, otherwise you're not going to get much more than the cheddar sort of thing. No, absolutely. And, uh, and it, it is that delicate balance. And then are the cheeses that he creates normally matured for three months? or the, you Yeah, know, yes, the that's the sort of out, out blossom what they do which is and they roll that he rolls those cheeses in um in flowers in alpine flowers what's the taste like in terms of how much of that cheddar flavored comes through it's a pretty good balance actually obviously you've got the base cheeses sort of nutty and buttery and then we've got our cheese which adds this kind of I guess this sort of, it it really sort of brings out the fruitiness and the strength and the richness and the savoury. It adds a a good savoury note to it. And where is it available? People all around the world interested in this cheese. And I think the whole batch is sold out. Some went to California, I believe. Part of the first batch came here, but we've sold it. We've currently sold it all and we've just sent, sent it because we didn't know how much to make. So we've just sent off some more grated cheese today to be made into Alp and Cheddar uh, this week. So it'll be available in sep- next available in September. A little bit will be available online from our website and then a little bit will be available from those customers uh, in the UK. Cheese Pantry in Wales, Cheese Plus in uh, Cambridge. Is it something that you think it would apply to potentially other cheeses as well? Yes, I think so. But I mean... Uh, I guess there's uh, those those Alpine cheeses with their, you know, quite different make, you know, slower acidification profile. I mean, you'd need to choose your cheese, wouldn't you? Yeah, you would have to, uh, you would definitely have to match it very carefully. Yeah, Yeah. feels like it might overwhelm a few sort of a mould ripened cheese might overwhelm it. And the blue, I would thought there'd be just too much going on. Whereas this um, brine washed semi-hard cheese is... Perhaps it's that sort of style. You could see potentially like the Austrian smoked cheeses or, you know, maybe some of the, the Edam, that kind of thing. That, that maybe Yes, yes maybe potential. those um, washed curd cheeses. Yeah. yeah. Although those washed curd cheeses are quite delicate, aren't they? So. Yeah, but it's an, an interesting concept of creating new cheeses from existing cheeses. Yeah. And I don't really think this kind of thing has been done before. It's, Not as far as we know. So this is what this is what a yeah, sort of creative evening <laughs> can give you. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But it's it, it's unusual. But the most important thing is that it worked at the end of it. 
Yeah. And, and reaction has been positive? Reaction so far has been, oh my goodness, this is amazing. When can we get the next lot? Which so, is lovely, isn't it? And also people, a lot of, some people are interested in the, as it were, the three cheeses, you know, the out blossom, you know, having a sort of tasting, a tasting box, the out blossom, the out cheddar and, and our mature cheddar, you know, because you've got the three, you know, you can, so you can see where, where it's, it's mother and its father sort of thing. Is this like a limited edition thing that you'll just do for a while or is it now that it's going so well, do you think it will stay in your portfolio? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah. I mean, certainly it was the first time we've sold the cheese that isn't, as it were, made by us. But it felt like, well, definitely we need to go for it, you know. And any other potential variations with the same company or is that, or do they really... Well, I guess watch this space, you know, move on to, hey, what should we do now? That was fun. And maybe something that you could enter in some of the many award shows. That would be fun, wouldn't it? Yes, who would take the prize? I guess that would be Albert, but um, it would, it's quite fun. And it's a, you know, really, it's a really interesting tasting to taste the Alp Blossom, the sort of horizontal tasting, the Alp Blossom, the Alpen Cheddar and the, and the Mature, and our Mature Cheddar. You know, you just see, oh yeah, that really, yes, I can see how that got there. What about its other properties? Have you tried it in terms of meltability or as an ingredient? I haven't because we've only had these quite small amounts, trial amounts. I, but I would think it's a, it's a soft cheese, so I would think it would melt beautifully. I mean, would I would have thought it would be absolutely lovely on a sort of melted on potatoes or because it's got this kind of quite pungent a rind which has got the potential to be pungent, but this look because of the washed rind, but this beautiful and nutty, round, soft, lovely melt in your mouth. You know, because his cows are also, um, they're brown Swiss ca- cows sort of grazed on the mountains on, you know, those floral alpine pastures from the Algal. And our cows are grass fed. So you've got, you know, that lovely um, low melting point in your mouth that comes from the grass fed. I think that is one of the hidden things that, you know, because a lot of milk is produced from maize. And which just gives a higher, and various other fats, gives a higher melting point in your mouth. So you get these cheeses with this low, with grass-fed that just have a lower melting point. So you've got this lovely melt. I think melt is one of the sort of less known qualities about cheese. And so it's back to the US, kind of, because avocado milk is a product developed in New Zealand, which started on the shelves there, but is now available exclusively in the US. Its sales might take a bit of a hike as well, as the product was recently featured on the Jimmy Fallon show. To tell us more about how avocados are the latest in the plant-based beverage lineup is one of Avocado Milk's founders, Terry Daly. The company is owned by myself, a guy called Nick Siu and Nick Siu's wife, who's a lady called Sachi Namura. And Sachi is in New Zealand. She owns a cooking school down here. She's a Japanese chef and what in New Zealand we call her a celebrity chef, which just means that she's had a TV show at some point on TV down here. Her day job is running this very successful cooking school called Sachi's Kitchen. And she is playing around with products all day long and she was in her kitchen um, at work and she was 
trying to make a mayonnaise out of avocados and she built this very runny mayonnaise and tasted it and decided that tastes really nice like a milk so she got nick and i her husband and i own an advertising agency together um and so she got us to taste it and we decided that it tasted pretty good and so we all three of us thought that it'd be a cool way. we'd never heard we knew that alternative milks and, and vegetable milks were, were a growth area we'd never seen an avocado based vegetable milk so three years ago we decided that we'd have a crack at it and um see what we could do and and that's pretty much how it started so so such she is well the three of us are still the owners it took a wee while to crack the way to make it that that was actually the making it once in a kitchen and making it taste nice was was great but making it so that it was scalable and that we could put it on a shelf in a supermarket and we had shelf life and and, and it wasn't it wasn't going brown and all of those sort of tricks to producing food that we had no idea about going into it that was sort of the hard part and and to the point to actually to the stage where we are today is we've got a, a the process that we have created to make the product is patent pending uh, based on the way that we actually mix the product together to keep it so that it doesn't separate and the oil doesn't shift. And I suppose it was probably all together was about nearly two years worth of trial and error as far as spending time with, you know, proper food industry kitchens to, to work out how to build it. Um, and we had some disasters and, in that regard but yeah we got there in the end as far as the the recipe and the ingredients are concerned has that changed since you started or has it been pretty much the same no the first year it sort of changed on a daily basis and then yeah we got we kind of got and, and a bit of that was also we'd create something that we knew was um, shelf stable and and it tasted good and it looked good and, and things like that and then we would go and test it with some customers or or stick it on a shelf in a supermarket to do a small run and, and get some feedback and then that feedback would then determine what the next version would be and sort of the breakthrough moment for us really was was coming to America and being in California and walking around those really cool natural health food supermarkets like Gelson's and Lassen's and um, Erewhon and people like that and, and seeing how customers interacted with the products that they were buying off the shelf. So there was a lot of picking um, bottles up off shelves and I was quite amazed by the number of people that would quickly turn the bottle around and read the ingredients list off the back and, and really study it. Like there was there was quite a lot of, a lot more than we'd seen in Australia and New Zealand. And then sort of sitting down and talking to some of those customers and trying to learn what was important to them and when we first came to america i mean we put really put all our eggs into the california basket i suppose and we turned up in november last year we had one deal with one supermarket um called um, galson's who have been absolutely amazing to us and got on the shelf with them and that formulation is is the same formulation we have on the shelf today that was all built around our customer wanted a really low sugar volume so we're down to we're under 3.5 grams of sugar um, per serve and and that was a really critical part of the formulation for those customers so we're now 100 percent in the states i think it was last month was our last production run in new zealand and we're now producing everything um, in the states and in, in california and that's given us a chance to 
go back to the customers and see if there was anything more that we could do. And that's how the vegan product has come about. So the the new avocado milk that'll be on the shelf at the end of August, that's 100% vegan product. So to get to that vegan status, we've had to take honey out. We were using New Zealand honey. Um, we've removed that and, and replaced that with an organic agave. So that gives us that vegan status, but also allows us to keep the sugar level at the less than 3.5, which is which is awesome. And what variants do you have? Original, we call it original, yeah, original one, which is the green one. So that's sort of the hero, I suppose. And and then the, the chocolate milk, um, it came second, but as far as America's concerned, it came at the same time. We've got two more in our pocket um, that'll come out at the end of the year. And we've got an ice cream and we've got a yogurt as well. But yeah, the supermarkets we're with now in America, they, they definitely want to see that. So our expectation is, yeah, we've got, Two more flavors coming at the end of the year, and then the then the ice cream and the yogurt will come early in 2021. What's reaction like to the fact that this is green? Um, I had a really cool comment on Facebook today, which was, "Oh my God, it's green! I can't drink that." So you have some people that react really badly and 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 hate it and are never going to be a customer of ours, and and that that's cool. We we, we totally understand that, but we've created a vegetable milk or an alternative milk or whatever the right um, name for it is out of avocado so so our our customer likes avocados there's there's no reason for them to try the drink unless they do like avocados so they're expecting it to be green and um and we can't do anything about it we have to it has to be green so other than yeah, adding cacao to it has made it brown and does it have like health benefits in terms of what avocados bring health-wise yeah, as we all know, avocados are considered to be a superfood, and so we've been able to. The, the trick for us is, as far as the formulation is concerned, is that we skin the avocado, we take the stone out, and then we freeze dry the pulp. And it's that freeze drying process that condenses down the powder, and and we we end up with a really potent nutrient dense powder at the end of that process. So we only add a little, it's only six percent of the product is is actually avocado powder but the the nutrient value is, is really really high so you you end up with 50 percent of your daily value of vitamin b and 20 percent of your vitamin e value and it's still got six percent fiber in it and all of that sort of stuff so it's the science guys tell us it's the small bottle which is 12 ounces the small bottle is about 20 percent of the nutritional value of an avocado um, and the big bottle is about 40 percent and where do you source the avocados from? On day one, we, we ran around New Zealand buying, <laughs> buying avocados of anybody that would sell us to them. And, and we then relatively quickly worked out that not every avocado was the same color. Um, so you'd end up having different colored powder and different colored um, drinks, obviously. So that was, that was a little bit um, confusing. When we made the decision in early 2019 that the USA was definitely going to be our home, we set the business up then to be um, USA ready, I suppose. Um, and so we searched America and Mexico to try and find a um, grower, a farm that we could buy avocados from that could give us the volume that we needed. But there was also a couple of tricks in there around um, how they were growing the avocados and, and um, how they were irrigating their farms and things like that. So we wanted to be a little bit sensible about who we partnered up with. So we, we ended up with a farm or a group of farms 
um, in Mexico, who we have an exclusive um, supply agreement with um, called COC, and they, they're awesome guys. They're, they're very smart, cooperative, and they, the farms are all naturally irrigated. There's no, no water other than rainwater being used. We buy the windblown fruits, so the cheapest fruits um, that they sell, and then we pay the farmers a 20% margin above what they get at market for that fruit, and they normally sell it as feed for stock or or just gets thrown away and so yeah so we've been buying off those guys for yeah nearly two years yeah nearly but nearly two years now and that was very much because they had the volume they had the flavor that the mexican avocados in our opinion the mexican avocados are definitely the best tasting and um, they were farming the way that we wanted them to to be farming but they were also really close to our um, new manufacturer that sits in California, so we so it's really easy for us to get the product to the manufacturers in California, so that they can stick it in a bottle. You mentioned like the sustainability aspect of it. Does that extend to the packaging as well? Yeah, RPT bottles, so recycled plastic, and and then able to be recycled, and we use vegetable inks in our in our printing as well. So yeah, I think it's important to everybody. I, I, and the magic part of all of that process and, and buying RPET bottles it's pretty much I mean it's a little bit more expensive but not game changing more expensive to to do that so I think if we'd been having this conversation you know even three years ago it would be a very different conversation where we would have been doing something amazing by buying RPET but the reality is we're not you know it's it's available to everybody it's industry standard I think now and it, there's no reason for you to not do it really and as far as price point, what is it retailer in the US? So the little bottle, the twelve point eight ounce bottle, is three ninety nine, and the twenty seven ounce, the twenty seven point oh five ounce, is seven ninety nine. So are you planning on other markets? Um, we keep getting asked, and we keep getting approached, and you know, obviously the UK is an obvious one for us. We we get, we've been approached by Germany and France a couple of times. Yeah, I mean, yes, is the short answer. We'll we'll end up there would definitely will end up in Europe it's got an obvious um, opportunity for avocados in obviously in China but it but in Korea is a really interesting market for me but right now we've built this for the states so that the US in our opinion the US and specifically California and, and maybe Colorado are the food trend capitals of the world and especially in this alternative milk space those guys are leading the world as far as the production and the nutritional value of the product so we wanted to be where those guys were and we we wanted to be in that market and that's why we put all our our avocados in one basket and turned up to the states um, last year to do that Because I'm putting the show together early this week, we aren't able to get our weekly update on the dairy markets with Liam Fenton from Stone X. I thought about doing something like saying butter was soft this week because of the warm weather, but I'll leave those terrible attempted jokes alone and we'll talk to Liam again soon. And that's it for another podcast. Next time, it will be our interviews from the Shift 20 virtual event. I'm still working my way through those. And we already have the following weeks set as well. So busy times, which is probably a good thing. I hope wherever you are and wherever you're listening to this from, you're also busy but not overwhelmed. And I hope you enjoyed the podcast this week and will join us again next time as we head into August. So until then, take care, stay safe, and as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>